Well, good morning again. I, uh, before we get started, there's a couple of rumors that I just have to squash. Um, first of all, for those of you who have been visiting with us since the start of the new year, I am not the pastor of this church. Our beloved Pastor Jim is here. He is alive. Um, and thank you for those of you who have reached out to them and encouraged them. Um, I know it means a lot to a shepherd when occasionally the sheep take care of their shepherds. So thank you for reaching out to Jim and for um, encouraging him, for checking in on him, and for praying for him and the whole Rosenquist family. Secondly, and more importantly, it was uh, told to me this week um, that apparently I've matured in my sermon illustrations because I've moved on from giving Lord of the Rings illustrations. <laughs> and that is a rumor that I just have to squash right now, and I will be bringing you a Lord of the Rings illustration momentarily. <laughs> With that said, let us continue now our time of worship in the Word. Please take your Bibles with me and turn to Haggai chapter 2. We're going to be finally finishing off the Minor Prophet in the last four verses of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And let's pray. Father, once again, with your word open in our hands and on our laps as we come to the book of Haggai, we pray that you would speak to us and we will listen. We pray that you would shape and fashion us into your likeness, that you would take your truth and plant it deep in our hearts so that we may live for you and be your people to be the sheep of your pasture. We pray that you would convict us of sin that you would build us up in all righteousness and give us direction for how we are to live. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of the Lord comes to us today from Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, as promised, in the final installment of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, it is the, the last movie, the last book, the epic conclusion to this adventure that our heroes have been on. Um, evil is vanquished, a new king is installed, he leads his people into a new era of peace 
and prosperity. But there is a certain point at this climax in the, in the crux of the tension when there's an interesting conversation that happens between one Gandalf, who we know well, and one Denethor, lord and steward of Gondor, that leads to one of my favorite lines in the movie, if not the whole franchise. At a critical moment, Gandalf comes to Minas Tirith, and he comes to offer counsel and aid to the steward and lord of Gondor, because Gondor, of course, is on the verge of annihilation by the forces of evil. So Gandalf urges Denethor to light the beacons, to send word to Theoden, king of Rohan, to ask for help, and help will come, and there is hope yet to be had. But Denethor responds, you think you are wise, Mithrandir, but for all your subtleties, you have not wisdom. I know who rides with Theoden of Rohan. Oh, yes, word has reached my ears of this. Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and I tell you now, I will not bow to this ranger from the north. Maybe you remember this. And of course, Gandalf firmly replies, authority is not given you to deny the return of the king, steward. And Denethor loses his composure. He stands up and he says, the rule of Gondor is mine and no others. And Gandalf spins on his heel and walks out of the room because there's no more to be said in the face of such uh, obstinacy, such stubbornness, ignorant uh, steward. The whole point is this man is a steward of the throne. He sits off to the side of the throne because he is not the king, but he acts and he lives as if he is the king and he rejects the king when he comes. There's much about this interaction that describes the fallen state of humanity today. We know we need saving from an inevitable doom that plagues us, but when help is offered by the nail-scarred hand of an obscure Jewish carpenter who would also be our Lord, we reject the rightful king from his rightful throne, which includes the throne of our own hearts and lives. This rejection of uh, this Lord of the Rings illustration describes Israel before the exile as Israel rejected God's words from the prophets. The prophets came, they pleaded, turn from your ways, submit to the king, the Lord, and he will save you. There is yet hope, but they reject this word and they continue in their evil ways. And thus the Lord sends them to exile by the hand of these foreign nations. This rejection also describes the Israelites of Jesus' day, who literally reject the Son of God, the King, and the Creator of the universe. This rejection also describes us, you and me, when we reject the same Creator and Lord of the universe and deny Him lordship over our lives. As we approach our text in Haggai chapter 2, this final text, this final word from the Lord, we'll see that God is making these statements to Israel because he is determined to bless them. God's first and foremost action in restoring blessing to them and to us is restoring the promise of the return of his rightful king. And it remains for us to decide if we will accept him, if we will reject him, and if we will be ready for his return. 
So this message is really part two of last week's sermon. This final oracle or word or burden of the Lord bears the same timestamp as last week's passage in chapter two, verse 10, the 24th day of the ninth month. It's mid-December. The uh, seed is in the ground. It's awaiting next year's harvest. The people as of yet have nothing, but there's a celebration that's happening because the foundation of the temple of the Lord has been completed. And so as we saw last week, God comes and he comes with these questions to the priests and he asks them about their state of cleanliness. And the point is this work is still unclean. And so God, um, in light of their obedience and repentance, declares that from now on, from this day, I will bless you. And uh, this passage is really one in the same literary unit as last week. I, I chopped it out for sake of time. Um, but here again on the 24th day of the month, the word of the Lord comes a second time. And we see that God is approaching his people Israel. He's come to them in their uh, disobedience. And he said, hey, do you do well to look at your own houses when my house lies in ruins? Go up to the hills, get wood, and build my house that I may be glorified in it. They obey, um, they build the house, they're discouraged, and then God comes alongside them and he says, hey, are you discouraged? Yes, you are. Don't be, fear not. I am with you. Work and um, don't be afraid. Then um, God declares them to be clean, their covenant curses that are upon them with the land yielding no fruit. As of yet, verse 19 is the critical verse here, the seed is not in the barn. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But God says, from this day on, I will bless you. The first installment of God's reinstated blessing is our passage for this morning. Yes, the, the lands will start to yield fruit and seed and harvest again, but this is the next thing that we hear of from the Lord. From this day on, I will bless you. And what do you know? The phone rings again. The word of the Lord comes to Haggai, and he says, go back a second time and speak to Zerubbabel. So we'll see that in our short little four verses for today, um, there's four literary, or excuse me, three literary pieces that are a part of God's action of this first and primary blessing for his people. We'll see first, God repeats his promise to shake the heavens and the earth. Secondly, we'll see that God will subjugate the nations um, because he is the Lord of hosts. The nations will fall before him. And lastly, we'll see that the promise of the Davidic king is restored. First, the promise of shaking the heavens and the earth is repeated, uh, verses 20 through 21. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, and he says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. First of all, we see that this oracle, unlike the others in Haggai, is addressed specifically to Zerubbabel. The others have been addressed to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, uh, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all of the people. So it's been a comprehensive word, but this word is specifically for Zerubbabel. 
Um, Zerubbabel is addressed here as the governor of Judah. We remember that this man has been made a um, governor of this Persian province. He may feel like small beans um, in the, his power and his ability to lead God's people. He is the rightful Davidic heir. We'll see that in a little bit. But for now, he's mean, uh, merely given this governorship of this Persian province of Judah. But God knows this, and God addresses him specifically as governor because he's about to give him a promise, a promise of hope, that even though things look bleak, even though he remains just a governor uh, in this foreign province, um, God is the ancient of days. He is the Lord of hosts. And what he's about to say is going to shake things up. Literally. So he then says to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, say, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Of course, since we've been spending time in Haggai, we remember that God has already said this. If we look back to chapter 2, verse 6, in this comforting promise where God came alongside a discouraged people and he said, work. Fear not, I am with you. God says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Um, he says, uh, see here, chapter 2, verse 6, um, the sea, the dry land, I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory. So this first uh, promise of the shaking of the heavens and the earth, God himself reveals his power his action, he reminds us that this is his work and that he will accomplish it by his own means and his own power, even through his lordship over the heavens and the earth, the nations that are on the earth, their money, their armies, everything that they have belongs to the Lord of hosts. And when he chooses to bend the hearts of kings to say, like Cyrus or Darius, the Lord has stirred me up to give money to this house and I will send workers and I command that cedars be brought from Lebanon and, and that this house be built with all of the uh, resources of Persia and these other kingdoms, God takes these kings and these nations and he brings them and their resources for his own means, for his own end. It does us well to remember that everything belongs to the Lord and that he can do whatever he wants. Even though we see sometimes limited resources and limited opportunities, God is the Lord of heaven and earth, and everything belongs to him. So this first promise of the shaking of the nations is a, a promise of comfort. It tells us that God is the Lord, that he is the king. We know how the story ends. He is victorious. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because he is the king. So as we see um, this uh, promise talked about in the rest of scripture. We saw last week that the author of Hebrews also mentions this, and he says that not only is this promise of the shaking um, a, a promise of comfort to Israel, but it is also a promise of comfort. This very same promise of the shaking of the heavens and the earth is a promise of comfort to us, 
to New Testament Christians. As Hebrews 12 says, the author of Hebrews writes, the phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The knowledge that God is able to shake things up is comforting because everything that is transient, everything that is temporal, and everything that is of this world will not last. But everything that is of God and his kingdom, including us, who are now brought to be with him, we will remain and we will be with God forever. And he will be our God and we will be his people. And that is the future and hope of every Christian is that the things that we see, the things that we touch, the things that we busy ourselves with in this world, this does not, this is not the end. We have a future home, a heavenly kingdom, and that is what we look forward to. That hope cannot be shaken. It cannot be taken away. It is everlasting. So that, that comfort is a great comfort. And as Christians, we should take comfort in this, that God has said, from this day on, I will bless you. And the first thing that he says when he says, I will bless you, is he says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. And we know, because we are in Christ, that we are safe, that we are in his hands, and that nothing and no one can take us out of his hands. It should give us great comfort. However, while the promise of God's shaking the heavens and the earth comes as an incredible comfort to us, it also poses an incredible warning to those who rebel and rage against God's rule. While the shaking that is promised earlier in chapter 2, uh, verse 6, is positive, God's saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth to bring in all of this wealth because I am working and nobody can stop me. That's a positive promise. It's meant to encourage us, to give us courage and confidence in our kingdom work because God is with us. While that promise is positive, here at the end of Haggai in chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, we see that God's shaking the heavens and the earth brings devastation and destruction to the nations and kingdoms that oppose the Lord of hosts. And so secondly in our text, we'll see that God repeats, he, he repeats the shaking promise and now he declares that he will uh, dominate and subjugate the nations under his rule because he is Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Verse 22. It's a run-on sentence. Let me go back to verse 21. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth, verse 22, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. This picture of destruction that God gives is complete. 
and final. There's really no arguing with God about this, about what percentage of the nations are going to be destroyed, about what kind of level of lordship or authority the Lord would then have. God says, I'm about to shake, I will overthrow, I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms and overthrow their forces, their chariots, their riders. In fact, all of these men will go down each on the sword of his brother. There will be nothing and no one left. These pictures that God gives in describing this complete and utter destruction of the nations would remind Jewish readers and and good Bible scholars of a couple of scenarios from Scripture. I don't know if you've caught on to a couple of them, but first, when God says, the horses and their riders shall go down, we immediately think of the exodus out of Egypt. This is the the language that is used when describing how God took his people Israel and led them by the hand out of Egypt with a, a strong arm and an outstretched arm. He took them and he led them through the Red Sea on dry land. And the people crossed over the Red Sea on dry land. And then when Pharaoh and his chariots tried to cross... Um, the Lord closed up the sea and, and swallowed all of uh, Pharaoh's chariots and his horsemen. And it's described as God throwing down the horses and their riders. Um, we see in Exodus 14 and 15 that God has done valorously. He has um, thrown down the horse and his rider. Um, So this would remind uh, Jewish readers and us today about how God is able to just completely crush any opposition. The Israelites are sitting there with no defenses, and the chariots of Pharaoh rush in, and there seems to be no hope. But when God is the Lord of heaven and earth, he crushes opposition to him, just like he did for the Israelites coming out of Egypt. There's some other... um, Uh, References here that we would catch on to, the horses and the riders shall go down, and everyone on the sword of his brother. There's the instance when God gives the victory to Gideon. Remember, God says to Gideon, hey, you have too many men, have less men, less men, less men. Have them go drink from the, the river. You still have too many men. And then God takes this very teeny force to show his power, and he leads them, and he says, hey, take the pot and the torch and shout and yell and watch because the Lord of hosts is going to give you the victory today. And the whole camp um, of the enemy just is roused from their sleep, and they're thrown into a panic, and they all kill each other. And there's nothing and no one left. And the people of Israel rejoice because God has done something impossible in granting them this victory. So God is able to do the same in the nations today. He's able to completely eliminate um, their forces. We also have a, a similar prophecy that has the same language here that's given in Ezekiel 38. Of course, we don't often truck all the way through Ezekiel, and we rarely make it all the way through when we try. But in the middle of Ezekiel, there's this prophecy that the nations will rally against the Lord of hosts, and these nations, uh, referred to as Gog, will, will fight against the Lord of hosts, but God will utterly destroy them. And the same phrase, every man shall fall on the sword of his brother, is used in Ezekiel 38 as well. The point is, the nations are in a hopeless state when they are pitted against the strength and the authority and the lordship of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven and earth. They don't stand a chance. 
And this promise that God gives is both encouraging because as God's people, we know that we are safe in God's hands, that we are safe from his wrath and safe from this judgment and destruction. But the nations and people who are not in Christ do not have the same comfort. In fact, there is a dire warning, a great need for fear because this God is in charge. He is powerful, and everything and everyone that opposes his rule will be crushed because he alone is the rightful king. I don't know about you, but this hopelessness that the nations face, and yet their stubborn obstinacy to fight and to rage against the Lord reminds me of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, I'll just briefly go through it. If you want to turn here with me, you will. Uh, you can. Uh, psalm 2, the, the author of the Psalms writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Even though their plight is hopeless, and even though the Lord is securely the Lord of heaven and earth, and no one can take that title or place away from him, there's still this tendency in, in the human heart to rage and to fight, to kick against the goads, and to rebel against the authority of the king. We do this in each and every one of us, and it's clearly seen in our young ones, our children. I know I talk about my children a lot, but my children uh, sometimes disobey. And no matter how clearly you make to them that, hey, this is what is the blessing for obedience, and this is what is the consequence for disobedience, I want you to obey. Sometimes the second that you tell somebody, don't do this, they just want to not do it. It's in each and every one of our hearts. We are rebels. We are sinners. And even though we know it is completely hopeless to try to rule our own lives, it doesn't stop us from trying to do so. God, in his response, in observing how these nations rage against him, laughs. Uh, Psalm 2, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, and this is interesting, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Isn't that interesting? The nations rage against the Lord. They are plotting together about how to throw off his lordship, throw off his authority. God laughs. It's hopeless. It's vanity. But in response, he doesn't just crush them with his might, although that will happen. In response, in direct response, God says, as for me, I have placed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And that's essentially the same thing that God is telling us in Haggai today. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, God speaks, the earth melts, and he decrees that his king will have utter dominance and control and authority, authority over heaven and earth. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me over heaven and over earth. Um, and 
Um, here in, in the rest of Psalm 2, we also see this. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Isn't that interesting how, uh, this is a side note, forgive me, but when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness temptation, Satan offers to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth. But that's not the right way that Jesus was supposed to get all authority and power and dominion. This is the right way that Jesus is supposed to get all authority, power, and dominion by obeying his Father, by becoming obedient even to the point of death. And so the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them, verse 9, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The same destruction, the same hopelessness, the same absolute dominance over the nations that rage. And yet we still rage. Why do we still rage? God comes to us with this knowledge. And just like he has seen, just like we've seen in the rest of Haggai, he says, consider your ways. Do you do well to rage against the rule of the king? Verse 10 of Psalm chapter 2. Now therefore, O kings, speaking even to all of you as kings of your life, now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This section, returning back to Haggai chapter 2, verse 22 it's a promise. God promises to shake the heavens and the earth, but this promise also comes as a significant warning to all of the nations of the earth and also to all of us, anyone who would be counted among the citizenry of the nations of the earth. It's a warning that this is what happens to those who rebel against God's rule. And the question for us is, are you really still willing to risk it? Are you really still willing to take the control of your life into your own hands? Why do we do it? It's hopeless. God calls us to serve him, to love him, to find refuge in him. Well, this brings us to verse 23. This is the last part of this kind of three-pronged uh, final promise. God says, from this day on, I will bless you. And I'm bringing my blessing to Zerubbabel. I'm speaking directly to Zerubbabel, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. All who oppose the Lord of hosts will be crushed, which will be helpful and especially meaningful for Zerubbabel as he's still surrounded by all of these nations that are opposing him and the kingdom of Persia that is ruling over them. But God says to Zerubbabel, on that day declares the Lord of hosts. That day when God shakes and everything is destroyed, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. At a first glance, when we come to this passage, it can be a little bit confusing because God talks in such a, a prominent, purposeful way that he is fulfilling his kingdom purposes in Zerubbabel, but 
Um, we don't really know what's going on. Why is he talking to Zerubbabel this way? I've never, some of us have like, I've never heard of Zerubbabel before in my life, well, unless you've been here for Haggai, right? Why is God making such a significant promise to this guy? And it helps us to have a little bit of context. First of all, this is a messianic language. God is talking to Zerubbabel, and he's using the language of taking him, of I'm making him like the signet ring. He addresses him as my servant. And this time, as opposed to the former time when he addressed him in verse uh, 21, he's not the governor of Judah. This time, he is Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel. Um, we remember that this man is the grandson of kings, of, of King Jehoiakim, the last king of one of the last kings of Judah before the exile, that the heir to the Davidic throne is rightfully his, um, and there's a history that is here. It's a complicated history, and the word signet ring directs our attention back to it. So let me uh, inform us of a little bit of this context by bringing us to Jeremiah 22, and I'll read a little bit from here if you want to turn to Jeremiah 22. In Jeremiah 22... The Lord is speaking through Jeremiah to the last kings of Judah, imploring them to turn from their ways because judgment is coming. And the kings, of course, um, reject Jeremiah's message. They throw him down a well. They don't want to hear what he has to say. And Jeremiah is directed by the Lord um, to denounce these various kings of Judah. So in Jeremiah 22, we have different sections where God names this king and, and denounces him and names this king and denounces him. And what's relevant to us is Jeremiah 22, verse 24, when God continues a new section and he says, As I live, declares the Lord, though Keniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life. This Keniah is the same Jeconiah. It's just like a shortened name or a nickname. Um, so this Jeconiah, king of Judah, grandfather of Zerubbabel, is who God is directly speaking to and denouncing. Because as a king of Israel, he has failed to lead his people Israel in what is right. He has not done what is right and good in the eyes of the Lord. He has not walked in his ways. And God is casting him off because he has failed to do what the kings of Israel were supposed to do in being shepherds and um, teachers and, and leaders of, to what is spiritually good for God's people. So God says to Keniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, even if you were the signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you off and throw you away and give you into the hands of those who seek your life, even into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hands of the Chaldeans. He says in Jeremiah 22:26, I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there shall be no return. And then there's this chorus kind of contemplating this and reflecting on this in verse 28. Is this man, Keniah, despised, a despised broken pot, a vessel that no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land they do not know? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall, shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now, the reason why I bring that up for as lovely as Jeremiah is, is because we look back to the past, just as God has, have, he has a broken relationship with his people because of their sin. They have disobeyed, they have not built the house, they have sought their own houses and their own welfare, and as a result, God's covenant kicks into play, and the land is not yielding for them, their sin is a barrier between them and God, and things are not going well, there's consequences to sin. Because of Jeconiah's disobedience, God rejects him. It's almost similar to how he tears off Saul when the robe rips off of Saul's robe and, and it said to Saul, I have torn you away from the kingdom because you have not obeyed and you have not led my people rightly. Here we have this Davidic promise to David that you shall not lack a man to sit on your throne forever and God throws it away. He says, this man, Kaniah, even if he were my signet ring, I'm throwing him away, and none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Now, what's so significant about that is just as God restores his people in Haggai 2, when he says, even though there's no seed in the barn, and even though the vine, the fig tree, they have not borne, you have repented, you have acted in obedience, and by divine decree, God says, from this day on, I will bless you. This foundational day is the day when God restores his people Israel by his word, by his action. He removes their sin guilt, and he restores them into relationship with him. And the first thing that God does in restoring blessing to his people is this promise to Zerubbabel, where God restores the promise of a Davidic king to Zerubbabel, the grandson of Jeconiah. Even though his grandfather sinned and lost this blessing, because of God's mercy and his grace, he restores this promise to Zerubbabel. And he says, on this day, I will make you like a signet ring having authority. The signet ring is something you stamp and seal with the authority of the king. It's a, it's a picture of the Messiah, who is God's servant, his king, who he sets in Zion, his holy hill. And through this messianic king, the nations will have hope. He is the light of the nations and the light to the Gentiles. And Zerubbabel, even though right now he's kind of a nobody, He's just the grandson of a deposed king who's come back from exile and now has just made the puppet governor of a Persian province. Now God says, you are the symbol of the restored hope of the Messiah. From you will come a ruler. Of course, the, uh, the New Testament authors are quick to pick up in this. In Matthew chapter 1, in Matthew's genealogy, and in Luke and his gene genealogy, they both list Jeconiah, and Zerubbabel in this list. If you read through Matthew 1, that genealogy that Matthew gives, we know that there's lots of people in there who are messy, lots of people who had messy lives in Jesus' genealogy. And the point is, God has worked through these messy people to bring the Messiah because we desperately need him. 
And that last part of Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and I'll spare you the rest of the list. Zerubbabel is seven greats, the great, 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 great grandfather of Joseph, the eighth great, great, great grandfather of Jesus, the Christ. So this is God's restored promise to his people. He declares them to be restored to his blessing. He declares his promise to shake the heavens and the earth because he is the king. He, he clearly says that those who oppose him will be crushed. But to Zerubbabel, he says, I will take you. You are now the symbol of the hope of Israel, the Messiah. And that is our hope as well. God restores his people by restoring the promise to bring their future king. That king came after, you know, eight great grandfathers later. And instead of coming on a victorious war horse, he came on a donkey to die for you and for me. He was smitten and afflicted, rejected by men, and yet the punishment was laid on him that was supposed to be on me. He died on the cross. He died the death that I was supposed to die, that you were supposed to die. And now he makes a way so that God can declare, I will bless you. I will restore favor to you because your debt has been paid. As we saw last week, this is the gospel. This is the hope of the gospel. This foundational day when the foundation of the temple is laid, is more than just the second temple of Jesus' day. This foundational day is because God declares reestablished relationship with his people through his declaration, from this day on I will bless you, and God lays the foundation for reestablished favor to all of us through the cross, through the restored promise of a Davidic king, through Jesus who would die for you and for me. Along with Israel, we are still waiting for this king. This time, when he returns, he won't be returning on a donkey. He will be returning on a great white horse, as Revelation 19 describes for us, as the one who is called faithful and true, who judges and who makes war on the nations in righteousness. You are a steward of your life and of everything that God has given you. One of the things that God has given you is the gospel itself, this provision of Jesus Christ for you, the knowledge of this truth that is now revealed to you and given to you in your Bibles that you have on your laps. And God has given you the chance of acceptance or of rejection of him of obedience or of disobedience to the one true king. The question that remains for you and for me is, what are we going to do about it? Have you accepted Jesus as your king? This is one of the primary takeaways we can take away from this passage as we reflect on the fact that Jesus is coming. He is the king. If you have accepted Jesus as your king, you have reason for great comfort because we know how the story ends we know our king is coming we will see him face to face we long for that day when he says to us well done good and faithful servant 
we know that he is with us, that he's calling us to work alongside him, and his presence and his power gives us the inspiration that we need to do kingdom work and to obey because we know that we are not alone, that he's right there with us. His kingdom is unshakable, and therefore the things that you do in proclaiming the gospel, in praying for the lost, and seeking to do spiritual good in your life and in the lives of others, that is a work that cannot fail. If you have not yet accepted Jesus as your king, you have reason for great fear because the Bible makes it plain you are an enemy of God. But we have great comfort even still. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even now, as an enemy of God, God warns you and he calls you to come to him in confession, in repentance, and in obedience in the newness of life that he would give to you. Isaiah 55, 67. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The Lord invites you to come to be washed of your sins and be made new as a citizen of a heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you have accepted Jesus as your king, there is yet another question to ask. Not only have you accepted him, um, have you yet to accept him, but also are you ready for his return? Sometimes, if we as seasoned Christians are being honest with ourselves, we answer no to that question. We're not ready for his return. As somebody who used to be a teenager and young, a young person, I remember thinking, I'm not ready for Jesus to come back because I have more life experiences that I want to live, right? I want to get married someday. I want to have kids someday. Thankfully, the Lord has given me those things. But I could also say, you know, I'm not ready for Jesus to come back right now because I have things that I enjoy doing, things that I want to do, and I don't want to surrender those yet. I want to be a grandfather. I want to have more toys, more stuff, a bigger house. I want things in life. And so I'm not ready for Jesus to come back. And even though we're being honest with ourselves and admitting that, we're also revealing that we're really not living as subjects to the king. We're, we're living as our own kings and our own kingdoms, and we don't want to yield that throne yet. Jesus can come. I'll, I'll get my life turned around, but not yet. Not today. Today, I'm the king, and I'm going to do what I want today. Sometimes we're not ready for the king to come back, and, and we need to be. Sometimes we answer no, we're not ready, because even as faithful Christians who have been in Christ now for many years, we haven't been disciplined or productive in our spiritual lives. And frankly, it would be embarrassing if Jesus came back right now because he would find us in a state of apathy, of disobedience to his commands. We simply haven't been living our lives as if we are truly subjects under his rule. And Jesus warns us about this in Luke chapter 12. I'll just read a paragraph briefly. In Luke 12, 35, Jesus says, 
stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief is coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We should ask ourselves, Are you living as a subject to the king? Are you growing in Christ? Are you busy doing the work of the kingdom that he has called you to do? Any employer would fire us if they found us goofing off at work. What would Jesus say to you if he came back and saw your life right now? Are you ready for the return of the king? Because the plain and simple truth is, Authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it gives us. We confess that as stewards of our lives, we too often usurp the throne, take dominance and direction and lordship over our own lives when it really belongs completely and utterly to you. Lord, we see how the nations rage, the kingdoms want to throw off your rule, your authority, and yet you remain unshaken by all of this raging. You have set your king in Zion, and it's in that king that we hope. Father, we pray that you would ground us in Jesus Christ. Help us to submit to you, Lord, daily. If we have yet to find you, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be drawing us to come to you as you so gently do in bringing us to repentance and confession. Lord, we thank you for the promise that we have that you will reign forever and ever, and we look forward to that day. Help us to be ready, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.